Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Growing Up the Podcast. Happy Wednesday. I immediately want to kick this off with just something that I want to talk about with Samantha because I saw it on mm. Twitter. And okay. I hate to tell you this as a as a New Yorker, you're gonna be really upset. But oh, I'm really scared. Kid Rock and Jason Aldean have removed New York from their You Can't Cancel America tour. Oh yeah. devastating. <laughs> I don't know how I will ever go on. This just, oh, it really hits close to home. What is always forever sad to me, though, I will say, as like someone that does like country music, is that Jason Aldean is like fucked up. Because back in the day, like in high school, I did like his music. And then turns out he's a cheating, transphobic piece of shit. So (laughs) sad on that. Like Kid Rock, no surprises there. Like I think we we saw that and that went out the barrel. Which look, there's the stereotypes of like country, like the country industry for Sure, but there are some some good humans. Hello, Tyler Childers being exhibit A, like hello. Mm-hmm. So just saying, you know what though? This gives me, I said this in our newsletter and the hot mic newsletter, because you guys know we are newsletter fucking central over here. But one of my favorite country artists is Breland, and he's just the cutest. I and I just really him. I think you find his stuff, like, I think you would like. It's a little less, like, folksy, which I feel like you, like, usually more, like, a little that end. Whereas, like, I feel like I like more, like, country pop adjacent mm. country. I mean, I like, I appreciate the folksy, like, that's a different mood for me. You know what I mean? Like, whereas, yeah. like, so, anyways, for those that enjoy listening to music to get depressed, <laughs> your root. <laughs> for those. <laughs> for those who want to feel something. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that enjoy being numb and partying. <laughs> I mean, the music is is the best. You know, you can you can go the pop country route and just try to turn your day around with some positivity, or you can really just like relish in your feelings and go the Tyler Childers route. That's the beauty of music, you know? Mm. That is true though, like in all seriousness. It's therapy. Yes. Totally, totally yeah. is therapy. And honestly, like, so is going on a little podcast walk, which you can do with this episode mm. and all of our other episodes. Highly recommend downloading said episode. So that way, like, A, helps us grow. Thank you very much. Self-promo in that moment. Also, speaking of things that debatably made me unwell but well all at the same time, mm. the Trump sneaker. I don't know if this is- <gasps> Please tell me. What rock? Oh, okay. You know what? I will give give you a pass. I've been out of the literally, country. Yeah. To it, which I we'll was... circle back to because I have so many questions. Mm-hmm. Fine. You have a pass on this one. Okay. What do I need so, to Google right now? 
Trump con- sneaker con convention shoe launch. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so basically. Sneaker con. <gasps> no. But okay, so here's no. the thing. He launched that sneaker as well as two that are actually real ugly. I mean, that's an ugly sneaker, don't get me wrong, but I did a TikTok on this because there are uglier Golden Goose sneakers than his sneaker. Like, would I ever wear that? Absolutely not. You Like, no. But again, I've seen uglier. But he literally, like, launched at this, like, sneaker convention, sneaker con in Philly, and it sold out. It's $399, okay? Like, Golden Goose are, like, 700 so just keeping things. But again, you're ranting about the economy being so bad, and then you're selling out. $399 heinous sneaker. And then apparently I saw this on threads that someone captured, like, you know, took a screenshot of like the fine print, like if you ordered it. And basically it says like, you're not guaranteed to like get the shoe. <laughs> Shut up. Really? I am literally serious. And it like gives like, and after they pay mm-hmm. the con and man of our mm-hmm. dreams and oh not God. guaranteed for it to like, look like exactly how it does. Like as if it's like a cereal box and it's like, not exactly like to scale to size, like yada yada yada. Oh my god! And if I just hope this, like, I hope this registers for everyone how fucking broke this man is. This man is almost almost owes a billion dollars in civil fees and such. This man's broke, and he's he's trying his best to keep his head above water. Well. And this is fucking hilarious. Wow. Thank you for surfacing this for me. You are so welcome. It was one of those where it cracked me up and just gave me a little bit of joy is not the right word because do I want to have to see a washed up presidential candidate slash former president con man and what's the opposite of patriot? Oh, traitor. You know, just showing up with his like little cheap sneakers that are overpriced on a stage while getting booed. No, like I don't want that for us. I don't want that for America. So I don't know like what the word would be because it wouldn't be, you know, joy in that. But comedic relief, oh, maybe. Oh, my God. This is too good. What? Like, I, have to I don't show you this one picture I'm looking at because. Okay. okay. It's just kind of, it's kind of magical. It's so subtle though. It's just a, you know, golden tea right on the shoe. Well, apparently. <laughs> but this picture with like the shoe focused in the front that I just sent you and Trump just like Trump's orange, orangely burnt face in the back. <laughs> Too good. You know what? Actually, this brings me to another point, which is whenever I feel badly about my spray tan mishaps, which Maddie knows is constant. Like it's never a dull moment over here. I can't get it right. One day I'll be rich enough to hopefully have a personal spray tanner and we can avoid all of this chaos and all of the the fallout from this. But I always know that at least Trump is doing worse in the spray tan or weird makeup department than me. And because yeah. asterisks on this, I, as much as I am the girliest girl you'll ever, not the girliest girl, but up there on that spectrum, I am horrendously bad at makeup. It doesn't matter what technique you show me. I'm just not good at it, which drives me nuts. And so when I look at his blotchy, like, bronzer mm. situation, I'm like, okay, it could be worse. It could be worse. It's, it's yeah, it's so much. It should definitely make you feel good, especially given the fact that after almost 80 years on this earth, he hasn't been able to figure it out, you know? Yeah. But okay, wait, that brings me to this little like CTA call to action to the to the peeps, to the audience, to our governors. If you guys know of a political makeup artist, like someone that's done makeup mm. for a candidate or even an elected official, we want to have them on the show. 
We want to ask them all the tea. I, I think we've even gone over this a little bit before. That's like a it's a teaser of like tea. something, right? Because it just like would be so good. I'm just so curious about the also experience the of what that's like. Oh, Why yeah. do I feel like we've talked about we've talked about this? I mean, maybe it was like the fashion diplomacy thing, but there's got to I mean, be some research that we can figure this out of like who is the who's the pantsuit stylist, you know, like who's the glam. Yeah, it's such a great question. And that is no, definitely an episode that needs to happen. And this is not to diss regular stylists because I love a non-political stylist too. But like the thought in terms of the symbolism, like not there necessarily. So this is like an up level. Like there's got to be like a political knowledge connected with this stylist. You know what I mean? Like that's, that yeah. is a niche within a niche. Yeah, the historical context and everything. Yeah. Totally. Mm. Well, I'm going to use this moment to pour myself out as a stylist. Speaking of which, if you guys are, <laughs> LOL, if any of you guys are looking to either upgrade your little closets, big closets, medium closets, any of the closets, 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 as they say on Modern Family, AKJ, AK that's always stuck in my, my head, slide into our DMs. We offer a styling service. And also, if you're like looking to figure out, like, I want to work in politics, don't know to wear. Same thing, offered that. And also, we have a Shop My account. So if you ever see things, not the current outfit that I'm wearing, that's for sure. Of ours, you're like, ah, oh, would love, love to see where they got that. We fill out those shelves with some of our faves and also things that are on our radar, things we just like, we need. I found a, a jacket that Maddie just absolutely needs this weekend. Yeah. And you guys need it too. Everyone go match Maddie. Like, that's going to be the situation. That was a great pick, Samantha. I don't need Thank to purchase you. that. I haven't Thank checked you. the price yet, but okay. I don't remember what it was. But I was in. Hmm. I don't think it was too crazy. It but happens. we need to know about your adventure over. Oh, when I say overseas, I mean over the border. Over the border. It was fantastic. We went to Tulum for my best friend's bachelorette, and it was so fun. But speaking of border, actually, I all her and like her friends are from San Diego, so I flew down there, and then. The Tijuana airport is just like right across, like right on the border. So we flew out of Tijuana, but you have to like cross over this like pedestrian bridge, whatever, and then go to the Tijuana airport. And we flew out of there. When we flew out, like I actually got to like see the physical border for the first time in my life. And it was fascinating. There is a wall <laughs> on the California border, but I think that's always been there. But no, it was just like given our last episode, I was just yeah. like, huh. What do you know? There it is. There's the border. Nothing too crazy down there. <laughs> that is actually, that is wild. I also, too, yeah. I have never seen said border. I've also never been to the Canadian border either. Like, I've only flown into Canada. So I don't know what a, a border crossing looks like, to be perfectly honest. It's kind of just like a fucking toll, toll entry that's just like trafficking and annoying. But yeah, it was timely. Well, we can get into our episode. We have a good one and a, a topic we have yet to cover. And honestly, we touched on Tyler Childers a little bit today. Tyler Childers to Zach, to our guests today and talking more about West Virginia, but also the topic of the fentanyl crisis and the opioid crisis, not only in West Virginia, but the way it's kind of just reached all over the country now. And again, this topic that we have, have yet to cover um, in full, which we have been definitely wanting to. 
Totally. And so with that, we wanted to bring on someone that could really tell us about what it's like on the ground, what their experience was like as well, and just really what's going on in terms of the status of solutions and pushback in terms of this whole crisis. It is layered, to say the least, and there's a lot of different dynamics. So first of hopefully many episodes we do on this topic, but nonetheless, this is this is today's episode. This is the starting point. So yep. take take that as step uno, my one word of Spanish that I do now. It's fine. Didn't even take Spanish. Took French. Anyways, moving right along. Without further ado, our guest today is Joanna Vance, and here she is. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of pros custom hair care and skin care is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pros covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing pre-mixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. 
But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girlandgov. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Getting into it, Joanna, we are so excited to have you on the pod and get to an issue that we have been wanting to touch for quite some time and haven't had the opportunity. And of course, when we were connected, we were like, yes, this is going to be perfect. We know you have been an advocate in you know the recovery space for quite some time in West Virginia. And to sort of start things off, you know, we got to know, like, how did you get into this work? What did that process look like for you? You know, how did how did you really step into it? You know, a lot of people ask me that. And it's something that I kind of fell into, but only just because of, you know, my own lived experience, because I grew up with parents who used drugs. I lost my father to a fatal overdose on Thanksgiving Day when I was 15 years old. I'm actually 34 now. So to put it, you know, into a little bit of retrospect. That was the time like before anybody even said the word overdose out loud, much less yeah. like nobody carried naloxone or Narcan or anything like that. I would like to say that, you know, I learned from my dad's mistakes, but generational curses are hard to break. So I fell into my own 10 plus year chaotic drug use or addiction. That's what some people call it. And I got into recovery in 2016, you know, and I've been advocating since 2018, actually, but The reason that, you know, what really catapulted me into it is in December of 2017, I was sitting in, you know, one of my best friend's funerals and he had overdosed the day before Christmas Eve. And I found myself sitting in his funeral, you know, and I was there in the present, but, you know, in my mind, I was just thinking back to the times of our chaotic drug use. And we used to talk about recovery, right? We didn't even know it was called recovery then, Yeah, but we would talk about did somebody did we know anybody that had been through had led the lives that we did that now on the other side had a job and a family and a home and you know at that time we didn't know a single person in recovery like Boone County West Virginia we never met anybody that had ever made it out of life so I made a promise to myself and to my friends that had just passed that if nobody was going to know anybody that they were going to know me and that I would was going to try to be like a beacon for people to be like, well, you know, she did it so I can do it. And as long as people know that you know, recovery is possible, then they have some, some kind of hope, 
right? They don't, yeah. they don't just think that, like all is lost. So from there, I started taking like classes and stuff like that. It's a sort of like peer recovery support specialist classes, many, many trainings and things like that. Advocacy days at the Capitol, public narratives and things like that. And that's how I kind of just like fell into the role that I have now because I was, you know, I was doing the work and I was showing up, but I wasn't getting paid. You know, I just wanted to do it on, I was, I didn't know you could get paid to do this kind of work. So I met the people at the American Friends Service Committee, who I work for now, in Advocacy Day at the Capitol during the pandemic. Um, and they were just like, hey, who do you work for, Joanna? I was like, I don't work for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, well, how about you come and do uh, what you're doing already and do it for us? And I was like, really? And, you know, the rest is like kind of history. That's yeah. amazing. Amazing story. And we're definitely curious to hear more about this current role that you're in and you are in the West Virginia governor's council. Can you kind of tell us about this work and really like what the state's opioid response is generally currently? So the governor's council was a piece of legislation that was made, I think in 2019, I could be wrong. Maybe it was 2018, but the Governor's Council was a council that was made to help direct the Office of Drug Control Policy and the governor how to respond to, well, how to use store funding and also how to like do strategic planning and implementation of how to respond to the opioid crisis. And a part that was written into that initial plan was that there would be separate, and like they have the whole, like the main um, council, but they wrote into it to where they would have different subcommittees, right? that had people with lived experience and expertise that, you know, made their own outlines of what they thought needed to be done and, you know, directed this main group of, you know, how, like, we made our own strategic plan. Like, they put it this, they put this group together and it was people with lived experience of substance use disorder from all across the state. I think the original, and there was like nine of us to begin with, and they were just like, okay, make a plan. What do you see that, what needs done? What is, where are we lacking at? Like, what could next steps yeah. be? And we never, like, initially all we were told was that, like, make this plan. And then after we made the plan, they were like, okay, now make the plan happen. And we we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't so make this plan happen with no funding, with no anything. Sure. Okay. But we figured it out. And now like, I'm not saying that like anything we say needs done, like it gets funded, but we right. come up with a project or with an idea or something, you know, we flag it and say, Hey, this needs funding before it's going to be able to be, to be implemented. Right. And our plans, they're like two year plans. So we're already on, we're on our second to your plan already. And, you know, it's been interesting to hear other people with lived experience and like some people want to focus on housing, some people want to focus on treatments, you know, some on prevention, yeah. some on stigma. And it's really hard to like bring all of that in together for a plan and be like, okay, this is how we're going to do it, A, B, C, and implement it. So that was something that I never ever expected. <laughs> <laughs> to do but you know I'm honored and 
you know, I get to use my lived experience and from, you know, I'm also a community organizer. So I get to like collect other people's stories and take all of that back to the governor's council and be like, okay, this is what I'm seeing. This is what needs done. And I think this is how we should do it. Right. And we talk it all out and we write up the plan and then, you know, we try to implement it to the best of our ability. Totally. I mean, I think having actual stakeholders with skin in the game and experiences so, so key. So it's great to hear that that is actually happening. And it does make me, you know, of course, ask the question too. It's like, what is the opioid crisis in West Virginia like? Like what, if you're to paint a picture of like what that looks like, because even from like the solutions and, you know, whether it's housing prevention, all these things, and of course they all connect and, you know, trying to prioritize those where, you know, you don't want to nix one because it supports another and whatnot, you know, what does, you know, a broad strokes level, you know, what does that crisis look like? Like, what are some of the things that are also feeding it? I think that before we talk about what it looks like now, you have to have a little history of, you know, how we got here. Yeah. You know, so West Virginia was one of the first states that Big Pharma rolled out their, you know, oxys, Oxycontin, I guess, whatever you want to call it. And <sighs> growing up, you know, we're like second generation. Well, I am. I'm second generation. My kids are third generation from when this started. Like this started with my parents and then our grandparents, right? They could go to the doctor. You know, this is like in the 90s, early 90s, mid 90s. They could go to the doctor for, you know, a headache or a toothache or whatever and get prescribed like huge amounts of prescriptions of opioids, right? They were told, uh, you know, our doctors were told that this new drug was non-addictive and that you could prescribe it based on the patient's need, right? It wasn't said to doctors that like, hey, you can only give X amount to for whatever reason. They were literally told that they can, based on the person's pain, that's how you prescribe to them. So then it came back to where they were like, oh man, you know, my patients are starting, you know, to have side effects or their medicine isn't lasting as long. So that's when they made breakthrough pain. All right. They were like, okay, well, their pain is just so substantial that it's not the medicine wearing off. Their pain is breaking through. So then they started prescribing, you know, meds in between the meds. So maybe that looked like morphine or fentanyl patches or something like in between the Oxycontin. So in it's like 2012, maybe, maybe 2010, that's when, you know, the federal government really started to take a look at and, and the addiction crisis as it was happening through, not just through West Virginia, but, you know, through the United States as a whole. So, you know, they really, they cracked down on the doctors and they were like, you're overprescribing. A lot of doctors got completely shut down, all of the pill mills and pain clinics and things. So you had so many people that were already prescribed opiates. They had been used prescribed opiates for a decade, right? And then all of a sudden, all these people, they got cut off from the medications that they had been prescribed and they were instantly cut off. It wasn't like a weaning down process or anything. It was went to the doctor, the doctor's not there anymore, tough luck. And that's when heroin came in, right? Because it's a supply and demand issue. You already had communities of people 
addicted to opiates or opioids or however you want to say it. So that's when heroin started coming in, right? It's the law of supply and demand. And that's really when you started to see people dying because, you know, before people were using a regulated safe supply. And I know that's like really stigmatizing to say because when we talk, we'll be talking about safe supply later, but like that's technically what it was. They, it was from the pharmacy. They knew the prescription, what was in it, how much like each pill was. So when the black market brought in heroin, people didn't know what it was cut with. They didn't know what was in it. They didn't know how strong it was. They didn't know how long it would last or how much they could take. You know, and it wasn't too long after heroin that fentanyl came in. And we know like the fentanyl that is coming in from the streets is not the same fentanyl that you'll be like prescribed or used like in a hospital. So it is like way more potent. And that's why you've seen the overdose rates soar the way that they have over the years. Just because like People are using these the supply of drugs that's not safe. It's not regulated. They don't know what's in it. Most of it's poison. What Lord knows what. Now xylazine, you know, is in the drug stream. And it's just like, we weren't prepared for the doctors to just completely cut off all of their patients, right? Yeah. And we, it's really like shown an effect on us that we weren't. And it's taken us. Lord, it's taken us a decade, a decade and a half to even get where we are. And we're just now coming up on the other side of, you know, having the highest overdose deaths in the nation and, you know, putting together plans and figuring out how we're going to address this. And like that does going into that, that doesn't even get into like the methamphetamine crisis or like any of the other drugs on the spectrum that, you know, really should be addressed other than just opiates. So like today's world, like in today's world, what does the opioid crisis look like? You know, kids are getting taken away and put into foster care. We have record number of people in our jails, mostly people with a substance use disorder or drug, some kind of drug related um, charges. We have, you know, still the highest overdose deaths per capita, you know, our houseless population is you know substantial we have you know we have kids dying i think that's something that's happening a lot and across the nation but we have kids dying because unlike when i was a teenager and i got to use and i could experiment with using drugs it was prescription drugs you know and now these kids are buying drugs like on snapchat or offline or whatever and they think that it's adderall or something and it's Mm -hmm. really laced with fentanyl and they're not even getting to they're not even getting to experiment or even just like have fun or, you know, like teenagers do because they're using for the first time and then they're dying as a result of it. We have family members that, you know, have lost loved ones who continue to lose loved ones who don't can't get help for their loved ones, you know, and then also like on the other side of that, we're still having to fight the hard on crime narrative. Like, we're still having, you know, to fight the stigma against, like, drug use and against something else we'll talk about later is, like, SSPs or, you know, safe consumption. And it's just the stigma against enabling drug users. You know, it's, like, it's very difficult to get elected officials to look at, like, evidence-based scientific studies 
and they just want to look at, well, we're just enabling and, you know, if we're hard on crime, then it, if we're hard on crime, then we can fix it. And those people will just stop using and people are finally learning, especially elected officials that that's not going to work. Like we've done it. Hard on crime is expensive. And that's, you know, what's gotten us to a place that we're in now. And now it's time to be smart and strategic in how we move forward to address these issues. Totally. I mean, one thing that sticks out in what you were saying is just sort of like the bureaucratic failure of being like, oh, there's a problem in terms of overprescription. And then all of a sudden we're just going to pull it like in any medical sense. And I do not have a medical degree. I'll put that out there. My two best friends are. So I get all the like extra chit chat. But like you don't just take someone off a prescription. You like that is the most common sense thing. It could be the stupidest thing. You're going to wean them off. You an alcoholic, you're not going to go cold turkey with them. So the fact that there is such a lack of communication and strategy there that they thought just shutting it down immediately was going to make sense just flags to me. And I think it really connects to the resistance towards solutions now where it's like, okay, it's, you know, it's black and white. And clearly this is also an issue that's not black and white. Like there is a lot of gray area and there are a lot of cause and effects and a lot of variables involved. So that's what really stands out to me is something that kind of is mind blowing. And I just wonder in retrospect, you know, like where that communication could have happened that could have prevented maybe not all of this, but at least some of this, you know, just sort of being the status that it is. But I'm curious in terms of solutions and moving to that end of things. What is available? What are the policy solutions that have been, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, sort of prescribed and what's working, what's not? We could talk about that forever. There, you know, we have medication-assisted treatment now, which is Suboxone, Methadone. That is something that has been very stigmatized for, you know, I guess probably since they came out, right? Because this is like, medication-assisted treatment to recovery pathways. So, like, and it's evidence-based practice. You know, that is something that is working. Like, the percentages of people who participate in an MAT program compared to the percentages of people who participate in an abstinence-based program. Like, there is such a huge difference, right? Because if you go to an MAT program, you know, yes, you're getting medication, but then also you're getting therapy, you're getting support, you're getting or you're supposed to be right all of these other things and it's not like somebody's just like cold turkey stopping doing drugs so that's something that's working we have had and you know that's you're gonna hear people on all sides of the aisle right talk either good or bad about mat that you know it's just a crutch or you know that somebody needs to just stay on it for so long and you know it's i'm just to a point to where like I don't care if it's a crutch. I don't care how long people say that they need to stay on it or whatever. Like doctors say this, people with lived experience say this, like it helps people with substance use disorders. Like people are, you know, able to live their lives and get their kids back and get jobs and housing and things like that and successfully live their lives on MAT. But this, so that's one thing. Other things, you know, we have, you know, we've expanded the naloxone across the state, right? We have, and now it's over the counter, so people can just go and buy it. 
um, at a pharmacy or they can use their uh, insurance card so they can just pay like a couple dollars. We have quick response teams. So that means that if a person overdoses, then within 24 hours, there's a group of people with lived experience that go out to them to talk to them, right? Maybe about getting in treatment or about getting help or about like whatever services else that could be provided. We have huge stigma, anti-stigma campaigns, right? To, um, you know, combat the stigma that come, that's associated with drug use or substance use, whatever people wants to call it. Um, it's teaching people about, you know, social determinants of health and ACEs, um, you know, and all of the things that lead a person to go to lead a person to drug use or chronic drug use or chaotic drug use. Yeah, we do have syringe service programs here in West Virginia, but in 2021, there was a bill that was passed that like highly, highly regulated those. So where once upon a time we had almost 30, I think now we have less than 10 spread out through the entire state. Um, and there's still a huge stigma around syringe service programs because they just want to say, you know, it's enabling people to use drugs. Um, when in reality, it's not. People are going to use drugs anyways. West Virginia, like we have a huge HIV hepatitis C outbreak and a lot of that. And it's not just because and it's not just with people who use drugs, right? People who use drugs have sexual intercourse with people who, you do, who don't use drugs. And that's just like a part of the conversation nobody even wants to talk about. But like it's spreading infectious diseases and people don't want they just like don't want to talk about it or address it well one thing that like is a part of the solutions too that i'm super curious about is like the narratives and the stigmas that you talked about and like why kind of combating some of those is so important and so i'm curious like what are some of those biggest kind of like narratives around this issue that like can be blocks to pushing for the solutions that are actually going to work Again, I'm like super curious on on the crime stuff and like all of that. And just again, I think drugs tend to be a taboo topic for a lot of people. And so it's like, how is that like narrative work so important and like pushing for these solutions that you talked about? So I do do a public narrative training where I teach people like how to share their how to share their story for purpose and their why. But like as far as like combating the stigma. It's so important, and I think people are finally starting to realize that, like, anybody can have a substance use disorder, right? Doesn't matter what your religion is, what your race is, what your social class is, anybody can have a substance use disorder. Whereas in years past, like, you know, there was the stigmas around crack cocaine was only for, you know, the BIPOC community, which that mm. was wrong. That was, like, the wrong narrative that was pushed. Yeah. Um, but like people are finally starting to realize, and it's not just that like they're learning, like they're seeing for themselves, right? That anybody's son, daughter, mother, father, aunt, uncle, grandmother, anybody can be affected by addiction. So that's like a huge part that's helped like combat stigma. Another is like, it's all derived from trauma. You know, once upon a time, they said that cannabis was the gateway drug. You know, and now people are starting to realize that you know, trauma, people are either self-medicating because they're undiagnosed or they've had traumas and things happen to them 
to push them into wanting wanting to be numb, not wanting mm-hmm. to cope. And, you know, it's just really that narrative, fixing that narrative of, you know, addiction is not a moral failing, you know, because that yeah. was what was said for so long. And, you know, changing that narrative itself is like opening the minds of so many people of realizing that like, hey, you know, maybe we do need to approach this differently. You know, I work at the Capitol a lot and unless, you know, one of the elected officials have heard my story or heard my testimony or whatever, they never think that, you know, I'm in recovery from a substance use disorder. They just think I've been doing this forever and I'm just somebody that they see that works there. And that's the thing, like, there's not a face of recovery. Like, it's not like recovery looks like this, just like drug use or substance use or addiction doesn't have a specific face to it. It can be, it can as easily be a lawyer or a prosecuting attorney or a judge just as easily as it can be a houseless individual out on the street. Yeah. The richest people in the world can get the best treatment in the world and still can't even beat an alcohol addiction, you know? It's really, really hard and it really takes a lot of resources. Even the people with the access like often can't shake stuff or can't for a long time. So it's just, it's a battle. And also like the people, and that's the huge difference that people don't realize, right? Is that, you know, just like many other things, it's a class issue, right? People that are wealthy, they can afford the best treatment, the best of everything. They can afford attorneys to get them out of trouble if, you know, they get charges. You know, they can call the mayor or the senator and be like, hey, my kid or my family member is so-and-so, can you help me out with that? And, you know, that stuff's just shoved under the rug because it's not supposed to be talked about. Mm -hmm. And then they just want to focus on, like, poor people in marginalized communities Because those are the people that, you know, are overflowing in the jails, that are losing their kids. But it's literally not because the, not because addiction affects one class or the other different. It's because wealthy people can pay to get out of jail. They can pay for attorneys. They can pay for all the things that, you know, working class and poor people can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or go off to, you know, a nice rehab in Malibu for a couple months or however long. And take the time that like really is needed to like go through something like that. But yeah, that isn't afforded to everybody. Totally. And one thing, just like hopping back to some of the solutions and stigmas, I want to talk about Narcan a little bit. We did get a question from an audience member asking about the stigma around it and why there's been pushback on it. Can you explain sort of like what those conversations look like and also like what Narcan is? So Narcan or naloxone, which is uh, the generic name, is an opioid antagonist. And that means that it reverses an overdose from an opioid or an opiate. And, you know, it can, it, it's many different ways it can be used. You know, there's intermuscular that has like the vial and the syringe. There's nasal that goes, you know, like up the nose. Once upon a time, there was an injectable kind, but they don't have that one anymore. You know, and there is, there was, there still is a huge stigma around naloxone. And a lot of it is like people are just misinformed. You know, they have their own stigmas that they have against like people who use drugs. But ultimately, like the main argument that I hear is why don't people with insulin or people, why don't people with diabetes get insulin? 
right? Like if they're going to use, if they're going to give, you know, people who overdose naloxone, like why don't they give people who are diabetics insulin? And you know what? Like, that's my question too. Yeah. It's like, that's also valid. (laughs) (laughs) We got here the long way around, but like, if we started talking about affordable healthcare, we'd be here forever. Right. But that is, it's just like hitting one issue against another, right? Instead of looking at the whole thing as of why can't we as a society get these medical things that are actually necessity that we need. Um, So that's a conversation that I hear a lot. Uh, I hear some things um, often about how maybe people think that a person should only get naloxone one time or two times or three times. There should be a number on how many times a person is able to be revived from naloxone. And, you know, sometimes people are like, you know, just let them die out. And the only thing that I have to say about that is that, like, if it was their son or their right. daughter or their family um, member, they would not be saying that. They right. would absolutely not be saying that. And, you know, if we had that kind of mindset about it anyways, then that's just going to pass down to the next generation. Okay. And we're just going to continue to have people dying. Overdose is a preventable. Overdose is preventable. And we know that. And it's important that we educate around it now and not focus on this person has overdosed X amount of times. Well, why? Okay, what do we need to do to help that person to not have them to overdose two, three, five, 20 more times, right? Something's happened somewhere. Like they've not gotten the correct treatment. They've not got the correct resources. They've not been, you know, put back into or around the community that they should be. For, you know, that to happen. I think those are like two of the main arguments. Yeah. You know, when it comes to naloxone. But like the important thing is, and like I mentioned earlier, when I was 15, naloxone and Narcan, it was not, no, I had no idea what it was. It's not, it wasn't common knowledge. We didn't have access to it. It's just now we're able to save so many more people now than what we ever ever did you know and i lost my dad in a time before heroin and fentanyl and things like that like my dad overdosed on prescription medications but still like think of all of the people that have been saved i have so many friends today that you know have overdosed multiple times you would never even know people who are executive directors you know program coordinators lobbyists people you know i i know people like in the house of delegates you know who are people in recovery that you know if it wasn't for naloxone they wouldn't be here today yeah i think we also need to tell those stories so much too because i think that that is what can combat any you know bad ideas and stigmas around Narcan. It's like, you know, like the Narcan can lead to the recovery that can lead to like a better life. And I think that's so important for people to understand what's possible. The other kind of policy solution that we hear a lot and that there is definitely like political debate about a safe injection sites. I live in San Francisco, so that's very, very common here to talk about. But I'm just kind of curious, A, like what they are. Is it the right solution? Is it effective? We do not have safe consumption sites here in West Virginia. Um, 
think the closest one that we have is in New York. I know Pennsylvania is trying right now to uh, get them legal there. But, you know, basically a safe consumption site is a place where you do not go and get drugs there. Like you take the drugs that you already have there, you can test them to make sure like what's in them. And then you can get sterile supplies there and use them in a safe space. That way, if something happens, somebody's there to revive you or, you know, something like you're not out in, on the streets doing it or in a gas station or a restaurant bathroom, right? But then on the other side of that is, you know, they give you resources and networking. They connect you with, you know, housing services, with treatment services, with peer services. And then also it's just the connection, right? There's a saying that says that the opposite of addiction is not recovery, it's connection. And that's a huge part. It's just like yeah. people already feel so alone and isolated and ashamed and hate themselves so much already. Like people don't have to hate on them. They hate themselves. We're our own worst enemies, even people who, you know, don't suffer from a substance use disorder. But when you go to a place like a safe consumption site, you know, you're meeting people who are not judging you. You're meeting people who have probably been through, you know, some of the same things that you've been through. And, you know, you're really just like building a connection that you probably never would have been able to build elsewhere, right? You're learning that recovery is possible. You're learning that you're worthy of recovery, that you're worthy of care, that you're worthy of good treatment. And, you know, something else that, you know, like I always like to bring up when people are talking about safe consumption sites and, you know, the legality of them or does it encourage drug use or whatever. A bar is a safe consumption site, right? <laughs> they yeah. are licensed. Very good point. They're licensed and they're regulated. People can go there. They can buy, they can even buy the, buy their alcohol there, right? And like bars don't even have like the regulations that, you know, the safe consumption sites do, right? Because like they still are allowed to leave drinking and driving from a bar, right? you know, with the safe consumption site, like at least people are regulated. They make sure that you're okay before you leave or like connect you with whatever transportation or services or anything. You're not just like going in, getting wasted and leaving because it's yeah. Super Bowl weekend or a Friday or Thursday night or whatever. But that's an argument I always like to use. Bars encourage it and supply yeah. it <laughs> and they'll provide you with like recovery as possible. They're like, no, keep doing it. <laughs> no, literally to that's that funny. point too, it's kind of wild like what drugs we consider like okay to then use, which like alcohol being a great example of that and like what is stigmatized and what's not and at what levels. Like you could have two glasses of wine and it's fine, but if you have 10, you're a horrible person. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's so strange in which, like, we've sort of formed this viewpoint or, like, societal norm around versus, like, other things not being regulated or not being okay to do. It doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, a push-pull and what that really means at, at its core, but it is kind of wild. I mean, now with weed and everything going on with that, too, I mean, it. it just yeah. goes to show the conversation keeps or the benchmark keeps moving yeah i have a question too about <clears throat> you mentioned like i guess access to drugs but like people can buy stuff on snapchat now like adderall being laced with 
with fentanyl. Can you kind of explain maybe that end of things and how if there are solutions on that front? Because I've also heard those stories of like my, my parents came to me one time because they know someone in their community who who did overdose from Adderall. And I just thought they got it wrong. I'm like, you, I can't do that. Like how I know Adderall, it's like not possible. Um, but that is a reality. So I'm just curious, like what solutions on that front are too, because that's just crazy. Like last year, the year before last, I knew that the overdose deaths had risen, but I hadn't yet looked at the numbers of where those numbers came from, like what age group that it was. And it was, you know, the summer before this past summer, when I finally looked and I realized that like from the ages of like, 12 to 22 14 to 22 those age numbers had skyrocketed and i had never met anybody that had bought like drugs off of snapchat or off of social media or anything i heard stories right but i went to i was invited to the white house this past august for international overdose awareness day and at my table there was a mother who was sitting there and she had a picture of her 14 year old son who had bought, you know, Adderall, or maybe it was, you know, lure tabs or something off of social media. I don't know how they got it. Uh, honestly, I don't know how that works with the black market and technology. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he had been using, she'd re- recognized that like, you know, something was wrong with him. And then, you know, she found her son in his bedroom and he was already passed away. And that's, I've heard that same story, you know, or a version of that same story so many times since I realized that like kids were dying. Right. And so I started, I was like, how do we fix this? What do we do? It's not, we can't just say, just say no, you know, that didn't work mm-hmm. on generations of kids. Like I went, yeah. I was in dare. <laughs> they literally brought drugs in and showed you what they looked like. Um, so I've been invited around to like a multitude of different middle schools and high schools and stuff to talk to students, you know, to share my story. And the thing is, we need to teach kids harm reduction. Just say no doesn't work. Like if you're going to use drugs, know where they're coming from. If you're getting drugs offline, you better test them. You better not use a lab. You better have naloxone so that somebody can bring you back. Like, if you're at a party and somebody overdoses, call 911 because you're protected under the Good Samaritan law. Like, if for underage drinking or whatever. That's a story that I share often because, you know, growing up, I know several people that they were partying and somebody overdosed and, you know, they didn't call 911. They left them or they dropped them on their, fr- on their parents' front porch and they died. And, you know, that's just another trauma added to their lives that those people that I know that that happened to, like, fell down their own black holes. Repeat cycle. This terrible thing. Yeah. So it's really important to, like, have these real conversations with kids. You know, age appropriate, of course. But, you know, just saying no didn't work. And it's not going to work. And it's important to talk to kids about if you do decide to use drugs, be educated about it, be informed about it, be smart about it, because we want you to live. We don't want you to die at 
12 or 14 or 16 than when you've got your whole life ahead of you, right? And then a policy that we're working on here in West Virginia is mandatory naloxone in schools. And so it means that like every single school in West Virginia would have to have naloxone. And it would also be required once a semester to educate kids upon parents' permission, of course, staff and students on how to administer naloxone. And like, and it's just, those are the key steps of breaking away the stigma that we were talking about earlier and educating the next generation. And how are they, how is, you know, our future of West Virginia going to be better than what our past has or where we're at now? I wish I had a magic wand to just like fix it all so nobody else died because I definitely would. But, you know, as of right now, that's all we can do is educate people, share stories, Mm -hmm. implement legislation and policies that's going to be effective that's not going to just put, push harsher penalties, you know, talk to students, talk to family members, family members never, ever get involved. It's just like, it, there's just like not even a sector for family members at all. Right. Like they're just like, well, you know, my loved one is suffering from substance use, but like they have their own traumas also that they have to deal with because of that. So it's like getting them therapy, teaching them about yeah. like, it's not their fault. Like so many parents come to me and they're like, it's my fault because my kid died or my kid's in jail or, you know, whatever. And it's not just like addiction isn't a moral failing, like having a child with addiction or getting incarcerated is not a moral failing of a parent, you know, and that stigma that they hold in themselves, you know, that's, it pushes a lot of like the negative narratives that you see. It's just because like, they don't understand that, you know, it's, affect everybody and it's based on your traumas it's based on your social determinants of health and your aces and like your surroundings and so many things and not just like how a person was raised yeah no i think that's so important to think about and talk about and to also legislate around in terms of services of like what about the families what about the friends what about all the other people that this impacts and you know i think that's really you know sort of coming to a head right now. And I'm curious to sort of do like perfect closing notes. How can people get involved with pushing for legislation, with pushing this issue ahead and making sure, you know, solutions really not only come to the forefront of conversation, but actually, you know, take effect? Um, So it is session time here in West Virginia. So I've had many, many questions and people (laughs) ask me this. And you know what I tell them? Show up. You know, at our capital, it's a public space. You do not have to have an appointment. You do not have to be invited. You are allowed to just show up in that building and walk around and walk in offices and ask questions um, and talk to people. And like, that's what I encourage people, like show up. Also pay attention to what's being said, you know, pay attention to bills that are being, you like every state has its own website, right? That, you know, so they're sometimes could be difficult to navigate, right? But usually there's like a bulletin board or something that you can click on and it'll give you like the day-to-day update of this is what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. Also, you know, there's a different in West Virginia, you know, we have the American Friends Service Committee, which is the organization that I work for. We have West Virginia Budget and Policy. We have the West Virginia Reach Initiative. Um, we have so many different like family support services, organizations like across the state. It's really about like all of those organizations 
like that are statewide talking to the organizations that are community wide, like that who talk to all of the people on the ground and just like communicating on a level of this is what we need. This is what we have to do and organizing to do it. Right. Like there's not a like there's not a way to just tell people in each individual state. This is how you get involved because it's different in every state. You show up. You show up and you ask questions and you don't just you don't just take like whatever they're saying for like that's how it is. Like do your own research, look up your own stuff, ask the question, ask the hard questions maybe that other people won't ask. And if you do that, then like the right people are gonna find you to help keep you involved or to, you know, amplify your involvement of however you can or want to help. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was amazing. Again, like Sam said in the beginning, like we haven't been able to touch on this topic too much yet. And so it has been something we've been wanting to dive into and we just really appreciate your time and sharing all of this amazing knowledge and for the work that you do. So thank you. Thank you guys for having me. One thing that I would like to say, there's a show and it's on the Roku channel. So you have to watch it like either on a Roku TV or device or something. And it's called The Fix. It's narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. It's funny and sad and (laughs) all of the things, but it's like little like eight minute segments, right? There's like five of them. And it goes from, you know, a hundred years ago when all drugs were completely legal in the United States, right? To how the CIA was formed, to how the war on drugs started, to how the opioid crisis started, to then to the fentanyl crisis. And it talks about harm reduction. And then it talks about solutions and drug legalization and all the things. And that's something that I always tell people that are interested in this subject, like, go watch that because like it will open your mind and your brain i didn't know 100 years ago all drugs were legal i just always thought yeah (laughs) i was literally during this interview too i was like i want a good show that can also like paint this picture or a good docuseries or something so thank you i was literally thinking about that (laughs) but that sounds really interesting and i have roku so i will be watching for sure Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.